We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Happy New Year and welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we have a very special episode for you. Uh, We're recording the day after Yom Kippur, but no rest for the weary because we have such an important topic to talk about, uh, something that uh, erupted uh, in uh, our pop cultural consciousness and our national consciousness uh, during the High Holy Days. Jesse, you want to introduce our topic today? Of course, we'll be talking about the life and legacy of the notorious RBG of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of blessed memory, who passed away on Erev Rosh Hashanah. We'll be talking about her role as a judge and as a justice on the highest court in the land. We'll be talking about the role that pop culture has played in helping society understand who she was and what she stood for, and also the role of Judaism, Jewish tradition, and Jewish texts influencing her fight for justice. Yeah, I, I, like so many people, uh, was just overwhelmed uh, after I came home from Arab Rosh Hashanah services to learn that uh, Justice Ginsburg had passed away, um, devastated. Uh, and um, it is a lot to uh, process and deal with uh, in the mix of all of the great national tragedies um, and uh, tumult that were still processing uh, in in this time on top of an incredibly contentious election season as well. It's just sometimes feels almost too much to bear. Uh, And there's just so much to talk about when it comes to um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life. And so we have a very special guest with us today to uh, help us talk about it, help us make sense of all of it, and uh, help us make meaning of it. Uh, We're very blessed to have today uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Jewish Women's Archive, my sister-in-law, I'm honored to say, Dr. Judith Rosenbaum is here with us today. Judith, how are you? I'm good. I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here with us. I I know it's a a busy time of year uh, for all of us and and for you, I am sure. Uh, And and I'm sure that um, uh, this moment has been a challenging one for you personally and and professionally um, because of uh, Justice Ginsburg's um, profound influence uh, on, on this country and uh, in particular uh, on uh, the women's movement uh, in, in this country uh, and uh, her role as, as an icon, uh, not only as a feminist icon, but as a uh, icon for uh, Jewish women and indeed for, for all of us. Um, so I, I, I want to just uh, ask you, you know, personally, um, how did the news of, how did you hear the news of uh, Justice Ginsburg's passing and, um, and, and, how are you processing it? How are you feeling about it? Uh, well, I will try not to cry. That's one way that I've been processing is a lot of tears, actually, yeah. that sort of come up suddenly. But I was, uh, it was the end of era of Rosh Hashanah services, and I was on my computer watching them on Zoom, even though I was actually watching a service that my husband was leading on our third floor. Um, And I'm not usually on devices during services, but there I was. And suddenly I got a push notification from the New York Times and I, I just closed my computer and started crying. I mean, there was just no, there was no way really to take it in. And it's, you know, it's, she was such a giant and she was so, um, you know, she, she was, one of the things I always think about with Justice Ginsburg is she was she embodied so many contradictions. And one of them was that she was this tiny, frail looking person who was also just had this fierceness and this strength that was so incredible. And so I think on some level, we all 
believed that she was sort of invincible. And, you know, I had been, um, several people had said to me over the last several months, as it, the news broke that she had been sick again, uh, you know, you might want to start preparing some obituary kinds of materials or reflections as, as one does for prominent people. Um, and I just couldn't do it. So um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't bear it. I could not bear it. And so that also meant that in this, in the, the moment of grief was also a moment of, wow, this is going to be a lot to try to figure out how to gather and tell her story. Not that that needs to all happen in the few moments after, but certainly was something I was thinking about a lot over uh, the first days of the holiday. I was listening to uh, an episode of the podcast, The Daily from the New York Times, which has uh, just a few more listeners than our Pop Tora podcast. And um, they were talking about- Not if you, not if you uh, all who are listening, smash that subscribe button <laughs> and rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Even still, they may have a few more. But that being said, um, they were talking about the life and legacy of Justice Ginsburg. And I was actually fascinated by the evolution in her perspective, according to this uh, biographical podcast, fighting for gender equality. That, that wasn't her initial fight, as we may have assumed, um, that there was actually a fear in the early 90s when Clinton nominated her, that some women would not have supported her her space on the highest court in the land because of previous comments she had made about Roe v. Wade. They were worried that she wasn't feminist enough. The, the podcast actually highlights when she and Marty were living in Sweden. And it was the first time she saw a judge who was eight months pregnant uh, working on the stand in the courtroom and realize what society looks like in America and what society should be if we really understood gender equality to its fullest possibility. And I found that truly fascinating. Uh, somebody who is relatively young, uh, I don't remember a, a, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg that was not this feminist icon. I don't remember an RBG that was not this image that I would teach my own daughters who always fought for gender equality. Judith, I'm wondering if you could comment on, on that idea. Yeah, well, she did always fight for gender, gender equality, but she didn't always do it in ways that were, um, that, that kind of fit the model of, of how feminism was trying to promote itself. So for example, I mean, her fem I actually think that her feminist understanding was so deep that it really, and she actually described it as she, not being about women's rights, but about really transforming all of society so that all people could have, a, you know, just greater equality and, and more freedom to live in the ways they wanted to. Um, so that it was something that she had fought for for many years. She started the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU in the early 70s. But she, you know, her, she had a real long vision. And, um, and she really believed in making change in a very precise and very slow way. And she was able to do that because she really believed that that change was going to come. Um, it didn't need to all happen because of one case or all happen. She, she didn't want symbolic victories. She wanted real change. And she was willing to wait for that to happen. And she was also very clever about it. She recognized that, um, you know, if you are appealing to a court that, that is entirely peopled by male judges, um, that maybe if you brought cases that actually had to do with men's rights as a form of gender rights, that that might actually speak to them more because they might actually be able to understand that this wasn't about changing the place of women. It was about giving greater equality so that laws that were meant to apply to all people, but traditionally only were applied to women because of traditional understandings of gender roles that actually they could apply to men. So some of the first and most important gender cases that she brought were actually showing how um, men were losing out on particular benefits because they were the primary caretakers and the law assumed that women were primary caretakers. Um, and so she really fought for a, an, a, a really broad understanding of gender equality that was not only about women, but was about equality for everybody. But I, her style was not one that was um, kind of in your face. And so I think both stylistically and her kind of incrementalist approach was made some feminist nervous who wanted somebody who was more kind of out there and willing to create a stir. Um, and you know, her, RB, you're right that RBG 
had a lot of uh, concern about Roe. She felt like it had been done quickly and that the basis on which it was built was not sturdy enough. So it wasn't that she didn't, wasn't a deep supporter of uh, women's right. right to choose, but she felt that it, it maybe hadn't been gone about in the best possible way. But still saying that did not, you know, endear her to some people. Sure. But I think it's one of the interesting things when we see the ways in which she became this feminist icon, you know, that happened late in life and was a very different style. And I think part of why it took off is because of that juxtaposition between, you know, the idea of the notorious RBG and this tiny, actually very soft-spoken, you know, incrementalist uh, judge. Right. I mean, so I think that that's, you know, some of the... Um tensions, I was about to say contradictions, but I think that that may be too strong. Some of the, some of the tensions of, of her personality, because on the one hand, you know, she's, she's always was, and especially later in life, you know, very, very small of stature, but, um, you know, incredibly, it takes an incredible amount of strength. First of all, physical strength. Uh, she, you know, despite many ailments, uh, especially in her later years and, and multiple battles with cancer, she, uh, as I understand, uh, never missed uh, a, uh, a, um, never missed arguments in, in court and um, was able to kind of overcome any manner of physical challenges, uh, broken ribs, cancer to, to uh, do her job. Uh, and, uh, and so that just in terms of her, her physical strength, her mental determination um, is, you know, just uh, extraordinary and admirable. Um, and, uh, and also having, I think that, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, fierceness of vision, but also patience and persistence to be able to um, uh, uh, drive change incrementally and know that the, the, you know, that justice, you know, to have a long view of justice, that it's going to take time, that it, that it requires, you know, movement uh, to, uh, to, to get from A to B, um, that, uh, that, that takes a lot of, um, mental resilience, uh, spiritual resilience, um, to, to be able to accomplish that. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and at the same time, um, a recognition that, um, uh, that, you know, um, I guess a shrewdness is what I want to say, right? Uh, that, uh, a, a, you know, sort of political shrewdness, um, cunning to be able to, uh, to know, you know, um, what's the, what's the optimal way to, um, to drive through the, the, you know, the change in the progress and the justice that, uh, that, that you want to seek. Right. Um, you know, because when you do, when, when you do think about other people in sort of the, um, the feminist pantheon, um, uh, you know, it's it, people who come at feminism from uh, from a more decidedly activist uh, perspective. So I'm thinking of like Bella Abzug uh, or Gloria Steinem that have, you know, much more sort of in your face kind of, bomb at least my pop culture imagination of them um, is that they have much more sort of bombastic personalities, um, even though Bella Abzug was a great um, uh, political operator. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but that was not who RBG was. That wasn't how she operated. Right. She definitely didn't see herself as an activist. But I, yeah, I'm really struck by what you said that, you know, I think that she, she, there is both this commitment to doing the work and the hopefulness of believing that the work will actually get you there. So it's not one or the other. And I think sometimes we forget that you need both. And she really was able to embody both. Like, you know, the whole, the idea that the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Well, it doesn't just bend on its own, right? It's like there has to be somebody who is working towards that, not just somebody, many people, right? And I think she really understood that, that um, you have to do the work. It's not going to happen without the work, but also a, a really hopeful view that it will happen. And I think about this also in terms of the role she played towards the end of her life as a dissenter, a great dissenter, um, which she hadn't been in her earlier years on the court where there was, you know, there were fewer cases coming up where she was the dissenting voice. Um, fewer extreme right-wing judges on the court. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but she she started to, in some cases, actually read her dissent from the bench, which was not the usual practice. Um, and if you ever heard her speak, I, the first time I heard her speak, I heard her, I met her once in person. She spoke at a JWA event and I was just so struck by how 
slowly and deliberately she spoke. And on the one hand, it was it was so slow and deliberate that it could be almost a, a little bit maddening, but it, it was also incredibly powerful. Even though she spoke very softly, there was this incredible power right. in, you know, this kind of self-possessed recognition that what I have to say is worth waiting for. And I will speak slowly and I will speak quietly and people will listen. And I was just blown away by the power of that, which is again not that not how we might always conceive of power sounding or looking, right? Is not she doesn't embody that necessarily, but she showed a different kind of way. And as a dissenter, also I think there was that hopefulness built in, and something that I think it's also I think a very Jewish response, which is that she knew that in putting forward those dissenting opinions, they didn't ultimately make a difference in that moment in the law, right? It was the minority opinion; it wasn't what law was going to be, but she said that dissents were for the future and that you spoke them and you put them out there because they were going to get attention and that those lines of reasoning were going to become law eventually because you left them there in the record so that people could find them and build on them. Um, and I think it's such a Talmudic view, I think, that we need to record the minority opinions and, and the belief that those two are Torah in some way and will have a use and a power and a following, even if we can't see that in our lifetime. How much of that do you think what is, was, was self-consciously Jewish on her part or maybe even unconsciously Jewish on, on her part, right? Because I know that, you know, she, she grew up to, um, I believe, immigrant parents, right? And, and you know, Judaism was a, was a strong presence always in her household. And, and throughout life, she, you know, um, uh, remained uh, uh, committed to, uh, to, to her Jewish identity. And um, even though she at times had a complicated relationship with, with uh Jewish religious life. Um, but I'm wondering how much of that was self-consciously Jewish on her part um, to, in your, in your view, I was thinking about uh, while you're sharing that reflection about the uh, for, of course, like you said, the, 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 the fact that the Talmud records minority views alongside majority views, um, but also the Talmudic story of the elderly man who's planting a carob tree and someone passes him along the road and says, fool, you know that you're never going to be alive to harvest the fruit of that carob tree. And uh, the man responds, uh, when I came into this world, there were carob trees that my ancestors planted for me to be able to harvest and enjoy. And just as they planted for me, so too do I plant for my descendants. Right. So w was that part of her mindset? Was that part of her consciousness that she was deliberately planting to harvest? It's always so hard to know how much of someone's Jewishness is conscious versus unconscious. But, you know, she did grow up in a very Jewish and, you know, and religious home um, in Brooklyn. And so it was certainly part of the, you know, water she drank and the atmosphere that she breathed. Um, she, I think she did have an awareness of that. I think actually as a legal mind, she was interested in that about Judaism. And, and so I suspect that her vision of dissents and minority opinions was shaped by her Jewishness. Um, certainly also her sense of justice was and, and shaped not only by Judaism, but by Jewish experience, what it is to be a Jew living in America in the period in which she grew up. And she, she talked about going on family vacations and seeing signs that said, no dogs or Jews allowed. So, you know, her experience as an outsider, both as a woman and as a Jew and coming out of a very Jewish milieu, I think very much shaped her understanding of um, her role her, of justice, of her role as somebody who could help pursue justice. Um, and, and she owned that as part of her heritage. When she spoke in Jewish environments and she spoke once for JWA and wrote a piece for us, uh, both for our feminism, our exhibit on Jewish women and feminism and for a curriculum that we did, she talked about her role models and her role models were Jewish women. Her mother as one of them. Uh, her mother died right before she graduated from high school. So she thought a lot about what she had inherited from her mother that her mother didn't, that shaped who she was that her mother didn't get to see. But she also talked about Emma Lazarus as an important model for her. And I think Emma Lazarus as somebody who was committed both to work within the Jewish community, working with Jewish refugees. Emma Lazarus is known mostly as a poet, but she also uh, was an activist during the immigrant period at the end of the 19th century um, and worked very hard to make sure that the wealthy Jews, the wealthy Jewish community, very assimilated community she came from, took ownership for the immigrant Eastern European poor Jews who were coming and suffering and being kind of 
treated badly. Um, but she also was very much part of an American world and most famously wrote the sonnet that reimagined the Statue of Liberty as the mother of exiles. And so I think, you know, Ginsburg talked about that dual commitment to thinking about peoplehood and thinking about responsibility and Jewish responsibility, and then also using that as a lens through which to reimagine what America could be. Um, and she also, one of the other role models she talked about was Henrietta Zold. Um, and she particularly quoted from this one letter that Henrietta Zold wrote to a family friend <coughs> in 1916 when, uh, when Zold's mother died, a family friend offered to say Kaddish on her behalf. And Zold, in a beautiful, gracious letter, turned him down and explained why she would say Kaddish herself, even though that was highly unusual at the time. Um, now, Ginsburg's own personal kind of break with Jewish practice came in part because she was denied the opportunity to say Kaddish for her own mother when her mother died. So I'm sure this spoke to her uh, very powerfully. But when she wrote about or talked about that letter, she talked about how Zold was able to be persuasive and very clear and strong in her argument about why she was going to do this unconventional thing, but also kind and gracious and warm and, um, and grateful. And she talks about how she appreciated that Zold was able to, you know, respond in this very kind and warm way and also not give up on her own viewpoint and that she kept that in mind in her own work and often thought about it, she said, when uh, my colleagues betray a certain lack of understanding. And so I just love that text. I've taught it a million times because I just love this idea of Ginsburg turning to Zold and learning from her, how do you, you know, speak firmly and graciously and, and get things done, bring people along. Um, and the idea that she learned that and you sort of named this great Jewish woman as her role model in that regard. And, and we see that voice come out from her on the court, right? She speaks beautifully, very clearly. It, there, she leaves no doubt as to what her opinion is, what her beliefs are. Um, but she also, we know, was had very warm relationships with people with whom she really disagreed. And she was able to hold, you know, a lot of space for difference and, um, and, and bring people along in the way that she talked about things and approached things. I find that really fascinating, especially now at this point, this sort of crossroads we are at in such a divisive society uh, where it seems like there really is a schism that uh, bipartisanship does not exist anymore. Uh, by definition, if you stand for something, uh, you also must stand against something else. And the way that Justice Ginsburg was able to famously have a relationship with the late Justice Scalia, who was really um, the antithesis to everything she stood for from a legal perspective. Uh, they, I, I can't think of a time when they sided and, and, and voted the same. Uh, and yet that didn't dissuade her from also, as you said, clearly and publicly sharing her dissents, even if it wasn't the uh, majority perspective, she wanted to make sure that her voice was heard. Is that is that bipartisanship, Jesse, or is that or is that uh, collegiality, or, or what we would call, um, uh, um, yeah, is it you know is it is it bipartisanship or is it collegiality? I'm I'm not sure. I, I mean, I also believe Judith. It's, it's what you said at the beginning of our conversation that she understood that in order to make real change, in order to create a just society, you couldn't just um, ignore and push off those that disagreed with you. Uh, that her her most famous cases, the five of the six cases that she successfully argued in front of the Supreme Court, uh, she made the case for gender rights in a way that people who would naturally disagree with her would agree with her. Uh, uh, shortly, we'll talk about pop culture, but the the example, the first initial case, the example in the 2018 movie on the basis of sex, which starred Felicity Jones as a young Ginsburg, was one of her first cases for the ACLU, the Moritz versus uh, Commissioner case, where she brought forth a uh, male 
uh, and his case really against the, the IRS and against tax law, uh, a, a law that was meant to discriminate against women. But when he proved that in his case, it was discriminating against a man, Ginsburg was able to powerfully argue in front of all men why gender equality mattered under this circumstance. I think it is a really important piece of her legacy, and I think it is sometimes hard to understand. And it was very interesting to read that in many of the you know, reflections that were written about her after her death, where people noted that as something admirable, even as they said, it's kind of mind-boggling. I don't quite understand it myself. But it, I think we all know that it, in some ways, is something to strive for, to be able to um, overcome some of the divisiveness of our time. I'm not quite sure always what that looks like. I don't know if the way that Ginsburg modeled it is the best or only way, but um, but it's also not surprising to me coming from somebody who was so often the lone woman, you know, a kind of pioneer. I think pioneers don't succeed if they can't work with people who are different from them because everybody they work with is different from them, right? If you're the first woman in a particular position or one of very few women, you have to figure out how to accommodate and get along or else you're not going to succeed. And so I think we often see with people who are pioneers that they're actually much better at that um, than the people who follow them because they don't have the luxury of being around the people who are like them and, are, and who they're comfortable with, they're, they're constantly facing this kind of, um, you know, situation of being unusual and having to live with and work with and, and learn with people who are very different from them. It's one of the things that we lose as we make progress, right? We, we know that as we make progress with certain things, there's so much that we gain, but we also lose certain things, which is, you know, we all can live in our little bubbles now and we lose some of the uh, skills that you develop when you are not, when you don't have that luxury. Right. And, and that's, that's the thing I wanted to ask you, you know, going back to um, your you know, immediate grief um, at uh, hearing about, and all of our immediate grief in, in hearing about um, RBG's passing. Uh, I'm wondering how much of that was uh, 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 mourning for, um, for that particular loss um, and how much of it was, you know, the, the sort of anticipation about what would come next, right? The, and, and, you know, we're, we're in the midst right now uh, as we record this of, you know, a very fierce, uh, partisan battle um, over um, the confirmation of Justice Ginsburg's uh, successor, um, who uh, President Trump nominated uh, on Saturday, um, and, and so I'm, you know, I'm wondering uh, if you can uh, reflect on that for a moment about um, what that means to you, and and um, and how you're thinking about that um, that process and that battle. Certainly, it's impossible to face this moment and not see the larger context. I think I was also, I was also thinking so much about what it must have been like for Justice Ginsburg in her last hours to know what she was leaving, the situation that she was leaving in, you know, behind, and how much pain that must have caused her. I imagine uh, it's such a burden for her to carry that she, in some ways, kept fighting and surviving and living uh, when she was ill for the sake of society. Right. And it must have been very hard to know what that, you know, it, it's a burden that I guess people who have that kind of prominence and power bear, which is that their death has so much national import and significance beyond the loss of an individual. It's the vacuum that's left in a system and what that looks like. And in this particular moment, it's particularly difficult. Um, Oh, it's so hard to know what, where to even begin with this and what to say. And I, I, uh, it's just, it's very painful. I, you know, I think this is one of those situations where we recognize um, what a difference one person can make in the lives that were, that so many Americans live. Right. So I was, we were talking about this at my dinner table and I have two almost 14 year olds and I was, one of them was, you know, sort of like, do we have to keep talking about this? It's upsetting and whatever. And I said, you know, this is going to affect you. You're going to be my age and whoever is nominated is probably still going to be on the court making laws that are going to affect your children and grandchildren. So it's just the enormity of that is 
absolutely astounding. It's really hard to wrap one's mind around. It feels almost like there's something wrong with the system if that's the case. Although I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. I don't, I, I don't think I can judge that piece, but, um, but I think it also calls to mind one of the things that's so important when we think about feminism and the changes that, uh, that feminism has wrought, which is that this case makes so clear that it's not just about bringing women into spaces. That's not the only piece that gender equality is about. It's that you have to have a mindset of pursuing equality. And, you know, we've seen so many different tweets and memes and things pointing out that um, women like Judge Barrett have been able to step into their work because Ruth Bader Ginsburg made that possible. And the question is, what are they going to make possible for other people who don't have certain rights or access? And I think that's the piece that one needs to keep in mind. And sometimes there's this kind of flattening um, of feminism as thinking that it's just about bringing more women in and not about a larger set of values and a and work towards liberation, um, not just for women, as Justice Ginsburg showed us, um, and not only around gender, as I think the people who have continued to pursue her work have showed us, and as she did too, she fought for a lot of other things as well, of course. Um, but it's having that lens of what the work is that you're trying to do, not just who are the people who are filling those seats. So I would imagine, um, well, I wanna be very careful uh, to not mansplain this. Um, I, I would imagine when, when Justice Ginsburg was asked right at the end of her life where she sat on, on the court as one of three women out of, out of nine justices on the Supreme Court and was asked, uh, when will it be uh, enough that there are enough women on the court? And she says, when there are nine. Um, I would imagine that President Trump's nominee, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, is a very, she's certainly a woman, but I'm not sure that she is what RBG was looking for or had in mind because it seems that her values and what she's fighting for are not the values that Justice Ginsburg were fighting, was fighting for. Right. I mean, and I think that Justice Ginsburg's comment about not, you know, there being space for nine women on the court was in, in part a comment against tokenism. It was saying it's not just about having some women so you can say there's some gender equality. It's about getting to a point where gender is no longer an issue, where, where we would think it no sillier to have nine women than, than it was thought for, you know, centuries to have nine men. Um, and, you know, that means having women of all political backgrounds on the court, but it means not thinking that, oh, we, we can replace this one woman with another woman and that's feminism. Right, because I imagine that were RBG around today, I, mean, I don't think that she would um, say that uh, someone like just Judge Barrett um, is, you know, has no place on the Supreme Court. I mean, maybe she would, you know, given uh, her particular ideology, judicial philosophy, whatever. But that, but that, her. I mean, like we were talking about before, right? Her, her, her view of, um, of, of you know, jurisprudence required a multiplicity of voices and perspectives, right? That she actually, you know, she, she obviously thought that her point of view was, was, um, was correct. She wrote down her dissents for posterity um, that, you know, she fought, you know, fiercely for, uh, for her vision of justice, but she also, I think, recognized that say Justice Scalia, um, uh, you know, had, you know, reasoned uh, arguments uh, and um, had a place in the conversation about the direction of the law. Right, and she and she believed in the law. Like I think that's something that's really important to emphasize. Like she believed it was a system that worked, and um, and that requires that people believe in, you know, having as you said, lots of different voices and people taking different perspectives and and trying to sustain law for towards the purpose of justice, not just for partisan partisan ends. Um, and so I think that's where sometimes things get a little bit tricky when it comes to appointing Supreme Court justices is that it's obviously a very partisan um, act and no more so than recently in terms of even this question of who gets to, you know, when someone can nominate someone and when they will be, you know, when there will be hearings and all of that. Um, can we, um, uh, 
can I ask about uh, this? This maybe we'll touch on uh, some some ground that we've already covered, but um, you know about you know how she kind of you know took on this you know iconic stature, especially later in life, and and part of that was due to the um, contradictions, tensions, you know, that were reflected in both her personality and her uh, physical presence. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, between, you know, the, uh, her, you know, the portrayal of her in, um, in On the Basis of Sex, uh, to the RBG documentary, uh, to Kate McKinnon's impersonation of her on Saturday Night Live, you know, there's, there's so many just incredible uh, RGB, uh, RBG pop culture moments, um, in, 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 in particular in the last you know, decade or, or so, um, what are some of your favorites? Um, and, and, and maybe also, you know, like, um, can you share with us your thoughts about, you know, how pop culture portrayed her and, and the ways in which that did or didn't do her justice? And I would just add to that, why all of a sudden, you know, Kate McKinnon began portraying her in 2015, the RBG documentary, the On the Basis of Sex movie, both came out in 2018. So it's really at the end of her life, very long life and her very long career that she became became this sort of celebrity status like justice. There's also this great scene in the RBG documentary where her granddaughter is showing her Kate McKinnon's impression for the first time and and her th- you know just being so tickled by it. Right, she's tickled by it, but she also sort of doesn't get it on some level, right? And that that I think is part of what's so great about it. I mean, she clearly enjoyed the kind of attention in some way, but not in a way that made it gross. You know, she clearly um, appreciated it, but I think appreciated it because because she really cared what young people thought. And I think for her, she was able to see that it wasn't just about, oh, now I'm a celebrity. It was about her work mattering to more than just a few legal scholars, right? It was about people understanding the nature of her work and caring about it. And that's what she knew would help the work continue beyond, you know, her lifetime. Um, she, She was someone who really, I mean, one of the things I admire most about RBG is that she was not afraid to learn, to evolve, to apologize. Um, she, she had a certain kind of humility, both about her own power and what she individually was going to be able to do, but also about the fact that, you know, people can make mistakes or people can, can learn and grow. And she, she acknowledged that. She first came to working on women's rights because of her students. She was a law professor at Rutgers in the early 70s, and she had all these, you know, women's libbers in her classes who were a little bit annoyed that she was kind of traditional in her style and approach. Now, I think in her life, she was not traditional. Um, We know that she had a partner who was incredibly supportive of her. One of my favorite things is that she, when her son would get in trouble at school and the school was constantly calling her, she actually at one point told the school, you, you know, he has two parents. You have to alternate. You can't call me every time he gets in trouble. You can call me one week. You have to call my husband the next week. And, you know, schools still don't do that. I, I find it, like, remarkable um, that she was able to say that in, like, you know, I don't know, the 60s and 70s. So I think she really appreciated young people. And so even if she knew that this wasn't her culture and she was never going to understand, you know, all the the memes and jokes and and uh, Kate McKinnon's is really among my favorites. Uh, the Ginsburn is just so awesome in that dance. But I think she understood that this was what was going to bring more attention to what really mattered about the work she was trying to do in the world and that there were a lot of ways to get it done. You know, sometimes there are these ridiculous battles about like, how does change really happen? Where people who believe it happens through law put down the people who believe it happens through culture and the people who believe it happens through culture put down the people who believe it happens, you know, through something else. And it's kind of ridiculous. Like it happens because it happens on so many fronts at the same time. And I think she understood that. She knew that she had a very particular path that was her path for change, but I don't think she would have said no other path for making change matters. It's only, you know, jurisprudence. I think she would have said, yes, the law matters, but also culture matters. And so she appreciated that she was celebrated in culture too. And that that meant that feminism was getting a certain kind of attention and popularity that it hadn't had for a very long time. I think, you know, 
what, something that you said, you know, uh, I think speaks to her um, jurisprudence as well. You know, one, one of the things that strikes me about her judicial career uh, is that in her ju- judicial philosophy is that um, she, you know, she, she did not see the, the, the law as written as um, always determinative and that she always had an awareness of the ways in which um, the law impacted you know, real people and real people's lives. Um, and, and that was kind of always part of her consciousness. I think about that, you know, um, for, for a long time uh, in, in conservative Judaism anyway, um, there was, you know, a sort of um, kind of like originalist uh, uh, philosophy that, that pervaded, right? The, a sort of, um, you know, another term, academic term is like legal positivism, right? So, you know, applying the law as it's written um, rather than, you know, what the, what the jurist, you know, uh, takes it to mean um, or, or how a jurist might apply it to a particular case. Um, and then, you know, sometime uh, in the mid 2000s, um, that, that approach began to be uh, superseded by, um, by, by, a, by a different approach. You know, some people might call it a, a you know, judicial realism or something like that, um, that, that says, you know, no, it's, it, the law isn't only about, you know, the words that are written in a, in a law code, um, that the law is about, you know, um, the, the, the real human being that's standing in front of you that's going to be impacted by the way you read or apply uh, this, that, or the other law. Um, and so, you know, one of the, one of the, I think the like sea change moments in, um, in how, uh, at least in conservative Judaism, the, um, the people came to think about the law was um, in the debate around um, the ordination of uh, gay and lesbian rabbis and the inclusion of um, LGBT people in uh, in in the Jewish community. Um, and and then I think you know uh, my teacher Rabbi Elliot Dorf, um, he kind of laid out his argument in uh, in a book, a really great book called uh, I think is accessible for everybody called For the Love of God and People, right? Where his where where he spells out you know an approach to Jewish law means a sort of loyalty and fealty to the received tradition, but also a, a recognition that, um, that we have to do right by the like real living human beings who, um, who, who, you know, want to be part of our community um, and need Jewish law to work for them um, and not to oppress them. Um, and I think that that, um, you know, really kind of transformed that mindset really uh, or be, began to transform um, in, in, uh, in, in our kind of segment of the Jewish world uh, around the time. And I still see the ramifications of it today. I still see it being really prevalent today. And, and it strikes me that, that RBG is, you know, uh, really a, um, an exemplar of that kind of approach to the law, that it's not just about, you know, fealty to what the framers of the constitution said, but also, you know, how those laws are going to impact people who are living in the, you know, year 2020. Right. And I think that that kind of approach not only values people who make up the communities that these laws are for, but also doesn't, you know, it also believes that the law is strong enough to be able to take that into account and to change, right? It, it's a, it's an understanding that if you really believe in something, you know that it can bear the challenge. And I think that was her view of America, right? That's the, the, the kind of view that there is an American ideal, that it's not, it's not dangerous to acknowledge that we fall short of that ideal, that actually it honors the ideal to recognize when we fall short and to still strive to its achievement, uh, knowing that that's going to be a long path. Um, and I think that was a lot of the work that she did was sort of acknowledging that there was something beautiful in the American ideal and that we know that it has not lived up to its inclusion. So how do we try to make it its best self? How do we try to help America speak, you know, live out the reality of uh, what the Constitution promised to be. And it requires that you really believe in those documents as having a lot of power. It's not about undermining those documents, which I think is often how it's presented when people try to, uh, you know, expand them. I think that may be one of the most Jewish aspects of her. Um, Mike spoke about right, the conservative Jewish movement's perspective, but really the idea that um, 
law, the precedent matters, but the law and the Constitution itself is a living document. And, and it, like Torah, it's an Eitz Chaim He. And, but it's only if we sort of cling to it and if we see it not as a document, but as law, laws that really impact people and the impact of those laws. Um, and I can't help but think of her Jewish presence without reflecting on how she, she passed and how she was mourned. Um, powerful vigils on the, the steps of the, the courthouse, uh, uh, the steps of the Supreme Court, on Rosh Hashanah, of people lighting yardside candles, of people saying Kaddish, people blowing shofar. And then even when she was lying in state in the Capitol, which doesn't seem like such a quote-unquote Jewish thing to do, uh, it really was breathtaking because it was sort of honoring her life, the first woman to lie in state. And one of our colleagues, Rabbi Lauren Holtzblatt, who was her rabbi, spoke beautifully and chanted the words of the El Malay Rachamim that reverberated off of the marble of the Capitol building. Uh, if that doesn't speak to one's Jewish identity, then I don't know what does. But Rabbi Holtzblatt beautifully uh, said and really referred to her um, as a prophet, that it's the rare prophet who not only imagines a new world, but also makes the new world a reality. That was the brilliance and vision of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's how I will remember her. That we, we say that a dream is one sixtieth of prophecy, according to the Talmud. That we all dream of a better world, but she found a way strategically in her dissents and in her legal arguments to say that the way law is, is not the way that it will always be or should be, and was really a modern day prophet, I would say from a Jewish perspective, from a woman's perspective, from a gender equality perspective. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I think also in the way that she lived her life and that piece of it, uh, I think is important too, that she was just a person of such great integrity um, that she, you know, as much as I said before that she, you know, had to live in, and work in a, in a man's world, she wasn't afraid to, she didn't try to hide that she was different from that, right? So she, you know, I think there are a lot of ways that we see this. We see this in um, the way that she, you know, sorry if you can hear the dog in the background. We see that in the, <laughs> we see that in the ways that she um, really tried to cultivate the, lives and families of her clerks. Um, we see it in the ways that she, uh, the ways that she, even the ways that she, you know, this is sort of superficial, but, but symbolically is important. The ways that she brought attention to fashion, right, into her work, the way that she, she said, okay, I'm going to dress like a justice, but I'm going to bring my own style with my collars and I'm going to use those as a form of self-expression. And she liked beautiful feminine things and she wasn't afraid to wear them. She didn't, you know, I think she recognized like, I already look different. It's okay if I'm also going to, you know, have these little gloves on or have this beautiful uh, collar that's going to express something. And, you know, and I think that that requires a certain kind of boldness and self-assuredness too. Um, that, that speaks to the kind of person that she was, you know, that she, she worked probably harder than any of us can imagine um, and that is the mark of a pioneer who has to prove themselves a thousand times over. And, you know, and, and in her, uh, one of the stories that I think I actually first learned from watching one of the RBG movies, you know, that she, when she was a law student and was also a young mother, and then her husband was sick, she attended his classes and took his notes and then attended her classes and took her notes and did her work. But she basically was doing the work of you know, her year of law school and her husband's year of law school so that he wouldn't fall behind. And um, that kind of incredible just willingness to work and be devoted uh, is just, uh, it's, a, it's just incredible. You know, it, what, uh, what you're just saying reminded me of, of one of my favorite um, pieces of the collection at the, uh, uh, American Museum of uh, the National Museum of American Jewish History in, in Philadelphia um, in their um, 
post-World War II section on, on Jewish life. They have this kind of um, wall or area uh, talking about Jewish summer camps, the Jewish summer camp movement. And there's a great picture of a young woman, 12, 13-year-old woman, um, standing up and giving a speech in front of you know a, a crowd of uh, her peers at camp, a black and white picture. And the caption below is, young Ruth Bader um, gives a, a pep talk to, uh, to her, her other campers. So she was, you know, both her um, connection to uh, Judaism um, and her presence as a leader, her outsized presence as a, as a leader was, was, uh, was um, present from a young age. Um, and, and as we've been talking, I, I, my mind keeps on going back to, um, you know, that it was re- reported that uh, she had a um, framed picture in her office of the uh, verse from Deuteronomy, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, Justice, Justice, You Should Pursue. And she uh, was uh, remembered to have said that that was a sort of guiding principle for her. Um, and I think it goes back to what you were saying uh, earlier, Judith, that um, that for uh, her, the, the pursue of justice, justice, the pursue of that quote um, was, uh, uh, was, was paramount, right? That it wasn't, you know, the, the verse doesn't say justice, justice, you shall achieve. Um, it doesn't say justice, justice, you shall, you know, attain right now. Um, it means that, uh, that, the, um, that, that trying to advance justice um, was, you know, the work of a lifetime and beyond. Yeah, and supposedly she was called the camp rabbi. So who knows if she'd been able to go to rabbinical school at that point, maybe she would have been, uh, you know, a, wow. a Talmud scholar and not a Supreme Court justice. But I'm well, pretty thank happy God for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you know, she she talked about um, how much Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof meant to her, um, and I think I think you're right that she really did take that as a kind of personal dictum and guide. Um, I don't know. I would have loved to hear her her take on why justice is is repeated twice there. I'm sure she had uh, her own beautiful interpretation of that. I wanted to offer you, Judith, to share some last thoughts on this conversation. Um, we talk about legacy. Uh, I, I fear that so much of the conversation, the minutes... Justice Ginsburg passed away was about the future. And she wasn't going to be able to be mourned properly in the way that she deserves because there's such a fear of what's at stake with the future makeup of the Supreme Court. And I wonder if you could touch on, in our final thoughts, what she would want her legacy to be and how we, the Jewish community, uh, the progressive community can make sure that we honor her legacy and keep fighting her fight. That's a great question. And I think it is really the important question in mourning her is how not to lose her and make her only into a symbol in this particular moment, because she was a person and, uh, and she, you know, had a long life where she did a lot of things and, um, and shouldn't only be seen by the hole that's left and where that, you know, where that goes. I think we're very lucky that she left such a, so much writing. She left her own words and her own, you know, legal statements. And I think that that's going to help because uh, there will be generations of scholars who are going to be able to take those into account. Um, But to me, the most important thing is, that I think she was very clear that the work, you know, as we've said, that the work of justice is ongoing, that it is not one person's responsibility. It's not enough, you know, everyone needs to work hard, but it's not enough for one person to work hard and for everyone else to cheer them on from the sidelines. Um, So, you know, I think that her final legacy is really just a reminder uh, to all of us that we have our work to do and that we carry on, uh, the vision and the the commitment to pursuing justice that she lived out her whole life and and didn't shy away from and didn't step back from you know I think one of the things that has there are two things actually I want to say <coughs> that have been sort of sad to me in this moment one is all of the conversations surrounding the question of like oh why didn't she retire when Obama was still president right and yes there I think that does leave a big historical you know what if um, things would look different. Um, 
But I also think that shouldn't be, it's not her, what, what, what is happening now is not her fault. It wasn't her job to save us. It wasn't her job to uh, predict the future, which none of us could have predicted. Um, I think she very much believed when you have work to do, you do it as long as you can. And we see that from her life, right? That she, she continued to work when she, I'm sure we now know she was very, very sick and she showed up all the time and she didn't complain. She didn't even let people know she was sick really. So, you know, I think that by her life, she showed that you don't step back from something when you can still contribute. To me, that's the, that's the lasting message of that piece. And so I would hate to see, you know, her kind of thrown under the bus as like, oh, she, she left us in this situation when I think she was just trying to keep on contributing in the way that she knew how. Um, the other piece, which is a little more controversial to talk about is, you know, the, the kind of looking at her legacy more deeply and saying, well, was she always admirable? Is she a, you know, was she pursuing every kind of equality? Were there, did she have blind spots? Now she's a human being. She had blind spots, right? Um, she definitely said some things I'm sure that she regretted and some things she didn't even know to regret because she was a person who was of a particular time and place. That's not to make excuses from her. I think we will need to learn about, as always, when you look at anyone's legacy, you need to look at what were the limits of their vision and where can we learn as we continue it, how to extend it further. But I felt some sadness seeing some of the like immediate attacks on her because I think um, there is really no one else I can think of who did more to pursue equality for so many different kinds of people. Um, and I would hate for that to get lost in what I see as basically acknowledgements of her uh, humanness, right? Her fallibility, that she wasn't everything to everybody. Um, nobody can be. And I think if that's what, what we set up as the required standard for our leaders, we will have no one to lead us. We, no one will step into those shoes. We will have no one, we will have nowhere to look for guidance and for wisdom. And we desperately need guidance and wisdom in this moment. Um, so much of my work is about trying to broaden the range of resources we have at our disposal in times exactly like these, when we need to learn how do you deal with difficult times? How do you make change in a broken, broken world? And if we reduce ourselves to like three people who are acceptable to turn to, then we are deeply impoverished and really at a loss. So I very much hope that in the um, analysis of her legacy, which will require some critique, of course, um, that we don't cancel RBG and that we don't lose the incredible depth and wisdom and, you know, dogged hard work that she put into the project of justice. Amen. That's such a powerful reflection and, and reminder, um, both of Justice Ginsburg's humanity um, to, to hold that uh, and, uh, and, and also to, you know, redouble our own commitment um, to the, the causes that she, um, that, that she fought her whole life for um, and the, the values um, that, that we share um, and that we're called to advance as well. Um, so I, we're, we're so grateful, Judith, for your, uh, for your, for your time and your wisdom uh, and your insight uh, for this conversation about a, you know, a, 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 a during a sad time, during a challenging time, during um, uh, reflecting on um, a, a moment that, uh, that that's very difficult, um, but also um, you know full of um, full of possibility if we're willing to um, heed it and uh, and carry it forward um, ourselves. So um, thank you so much for being with us today and for um, sharing so graciously of, uh, of, of your um, expertise and your spirit. Um, I want to just put in a plug that uh, you should all go to the website of Jewish Women's Archive, jwa.org. Uh, there you can um, read some of JWA's retrospectives on RBG's life, among many other things. 
questions um, here, an audio of uh, RBG in her own words. Um, and even if you're so moved uh, by some great merch, including uh, some wonderful RBG t-shirts and onesies, if for you with the little kids out there, or if you're shopping for an early Hanukkah present for someone. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this was really a great conversation and I and one that I think that we'll all be continuing and continuing to think about um, over the coming months and years, I certainly hope. Thank you so much, Judith. And uh, if you care about Justice Ginsburg's legacy, uh, then do not forget to vote uh, because vote like our lives depend on it because for many of us, and I say this acknowledging my privilege as a cis, straight, white male, um, but for many in society, uh, our lives very much do depend on voting and the turnouts and results of this election and the makeup of the Supreme Court for the future. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Be well, everyone.